And welcome back or welcome to the On Coaching Podcast with myself, Steve Magnus, the coach at the University of Houston, Deputy Director of High Performance West, and John Marcus, my good friend and colleague, Director of High Performance West. John, it's track season, but we're going to put out another podcast. Why? Why? Because you already know why. We're here to give the people what they want. Come on. And before we get into that, two things we got to plug. If you haven't checked out my latest book, The Passion Paradox, please do so. The uh, links are in the show notes, but you can find it at any bookstore or uh, online, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all that stuff. I promised you that you're going to find something useful. Um, yeah, if you it, haven't read it, what's wrong with you? I've it, read three times. I read the first draft, the second draft, and the final draft. And let me tell you. The final draft is the best draft, and that's thank, the one that's out. Thank goodness. If not, I would have I would have fired you as a free editor. Um, yes, I know. I get paid all this big bucks, like, and I still even buy the book. Like, I've read the book twice, and then I bought it. So, again, no favors here. Support, support Brad and Steve. They're doing really good work. You should buy books. Buy then, books. Don't buy TV. Buy books. There we go. Throw your TV out. All right. And the, the, the one other thing we want to mention is uh, GAIN. So Vern Gambetta puts on a wonderful conference extravaganza. It's beyond a conference. Um, that is probably one of the best or is without a doubt one of the best um, learning opportunities that you have. It's not just lectures. It's on-hand learning. It's you get to learn how to coach down at the track in the morning from some of the best coaches in the world. So we'll put the link in the show notes as well. Uh, John and I will will be be there. Yes, yes. I'm there to learn. I'm not even there to be, you know, someone that's spitting out knowledge. Like we have some giants in the industry. And guess what, man? When they die, they're gone forever. So come out the game, apply. It's worth every penny. I guarantee it. You know, I've been wanting to go for years and finally I can go and just booked my plane ticket the other day, coming to Houston, sleeping on Steve's couch, and I'll be there bright and early every morning at the track, ready to learn. All right. So, um, having said that, what are we going to talk about today? And our topic is biggest mistakes coaches are making. And I think before we jump into this, John, I think it's important to note we're not uh, we're not criticizing other coaches. We're not you know harping on people saying that like hey we know the way and like you guys are doing it wrong what we're doing here is taking a look at at some of the things we're doing some of the things that we've seen as a whole to look at okay and some of the things and mistakes we've made recently um but to look at a whole of of where the profession of coaching is doing or where we're going in the sense of oh man are we headed down the wrong path there you know are are we uh are we missing this boat and we don't have the answers, but we're going to explore some of that. Am I right? Yeah, on it's more of a reflection and an exploration in the current zeitgeist of modern coaching today, 2019, May. Okay. So, and and, and think- that's important to do that. It's important to take inventory because yeah. if you're not, you know, reflecting and you're not critiquing, like that is the that is at the heart of what coaching is, is always believing and knowing there is a better way. The ways we are doing it might be good or good enough, or the best they've ever been. But I think there always is a better way. And that's kind of the, the coach's dilemma, right? And I always call it the artist's dilemma. It's, I, I, you know, the famous story of Picasso, when he was at the height of his powers, his, you know, agent came in and was ready for the show in the gallery and looked around Picasso's studio. And he's like, oh, these are wonderful pieces. These are amazing. Oh, we're going to make so much money. And Picasso's like, they're all crap. And he slashed and burned in front of like the his agent's eyes like 50 pieces 50 paintings and his agent was like those are millions of dollars you're wasting he goes it's crap i'm not putting out crap like his standard was so high that he knew he was trying to get to some vision of perfect in his mind and when the works he produced was not close to that he said i gotta go back into the studio and refine and refine and refine and that ultimately is what coaching you know it's a very uh, important ingredient or dimension of coaching, but not coming off as an asshole or a dick <laughs> and saying like, oh, we know all the answers and you don't. Like BS, it's a constant evolution. But if you're not taking inventory, 
you can't grow. And, am and, I right or am yeah, I wrong? Yeah, and I think that word evolution is is the word to use because mm-hmm. the way I like to think of it, and you know this as well as I do, John, if if you're reading if you're reading books from the seventies, sixties, fifties, whatever, and you're reading Lydiard and Sarity and you know, Bowerman and all these guys that we like to talk about. Um, it's interesting putting yourself in that time frame of like, okay, what if what if this was all I knew, right? And right. then you then you zoom out and you say, well, look how far we've like evolved in our training, and well, these things got a lot of th- these guys got a lot of things right. Like, th- there's we've come so far in some degrees. Um, what if you were Bowerman in the seventies and like? you know, had this base knowledge of, of the time, how do you accelerate that towards maybe the the more modernized, better training that we're at now? And we're in that same, it, it, it might be hard to realize, but we're in that same spot where 30, 40 years from now, they're going to look back at, at my book and John and I's work and be like, oh, this was, this might have been pretty good, but man, why didn't these guys do this, this, and this, and this? And mm-hmm. um, while we can't predict the future, I think it's worth worth uh, taking the time to step back and be like, "Hmm, are we in the are we in the right direction here? Or where where could we go? Or what are some things where we might be headed off on uh, on tangents that uh, that aren't very productive?" Yeah, and like my own personal practice of coaching, I try to take a what I call a shallow inventory, you know, kind of weekly. And then a little bit more deeper inventory after each season. And then a really, really, really deep dive inventory once a year annually. And what happens is I look back at how I coached or what I esteemed the previous year or five years prior. And I go, wow, how did people even run fast? (laughs) Like, you know, it's almost embarrassing. And that shows evolution. That shows growth, right? It shows that you are refining because you're saying, what I did or how I did it, like the tactics or the methods that you employed, you're, you know, you've uh, shedded, you've aged out of because they were a little bit more simplistic. They were a little bit less refined. They were a little bit more primitive, right? And that's the, the, the value of this practice because, you know, I think to start us off, one of the things that every coach and even human being is really striving towards is clarity right in um, 21 lessons for the 21st century by uh, Hari, Hari uh, Yuval Harari um, who also wrote Sapiens you know he says that the old paradigm is knowledge is power that's no longer true in this age of ubiquitous data and knowledge it's actually clarity is power and so if we understand that clarity is the, the key thing we're trying to, you know, get the signal from the noise, right? We have to say, okay, well, how do we get clarity? And that's where, like, say, John Boyd's OODA model from military practices, right? Observe, orient, decide, and act. How do you move from observation to action? And, the, you know, the idea is the, um, the outfit that can move its quickest and most succinctly with the correct observation and the correct action is the one who will win the contest, whether it's military, sport, business, what have you, is then you say, well, how do I gain more clarity? And it comes from this reflection, 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 reflection. The more you reflect, the better off you are. And a lot of times it's not just, you know, staring at the sun and thinking what I challenge athletes that I work with to do. And what I do daily is I, as Marilyn Monroe quoted, think in ink, right? Write it down. There's a lot of power to be had when you put the thoughts on a piece of paper. Not not type it in your phone, but write, you know, old school pen to paper, think in ink. And it's been one of my mantras for a long time is taking that Marilyn Monroe context and thinking in ink and saying, well, let's orient ourselves and get clarity and say, what are we really trying to accomplish here? And then thinking very crisply, in kind of the, the, the main three drivers, right? Understand what your objective is. And then from that is your strategy. And then from that influences your tactics. And I've talked about before strategy and tactics and how people get them confused, right? So objective, simple. It's what is the purpose? Are you trying to win? 
this race or this championship. It has to be really clear, cut and dry, like smart, right? Measurable, attainable, have a deadline, all those good things. So make that really simple. What your strategy is, is what are you about? What's your philosophy, right? So if you have an objective to win or you have an objective to PR or qualify for Boston, how are you going to go about doing it from a philosophical or um, who I am standpoint? Are you going to, you know, we run fast, we run hard, we run in the front, we value good, you know, economy of movement, whatever it is, that needs to be very clear about philosophically what your core essential is about. So if you are in charge of a cross country team or a track team, or you're coaching, you know, a handful of private clients, or you're a strength and conditioning coach, and you're coaching three or four different sports, they need to be able to come in and say, okay, what's this guy's strategy to get us to this objective? And then, then the tactics sync up. Then you can be very clear once you have a clear strategy saying, well, this fits in or this doesn't fit in. I also also call strategy uh, principles. What are your core principles? And tactics are methods, right? So we sit here and we bellyache, and I think that's one of the biggest mistakes, right? We look at all these methods that have been employed to get people fast or to win, and then we sit here and we compare or argue or bicker over what's the best method Oh, the best method is, you know, Lydiard, or no, it's Igloy, or oh no, it's you know, uh, Bowerman, or Oregon Project, or Brooks Beast, or whatever like the denouement is, and the the hottest, hottest, most popular thing is that's the best method. But you have to step, take one step back. What are the principles of that methods? Because once you get the principles down, almost any method works, as we've seen with, if you understand and have researched the history of training for distance running. All these guys had, and women had very different methods, but their core principles, there wasn't a whole lot of difference. And so that's really important, I think, to get that clear in your own mind. If you can't, as a coach, say, here's the objective for the team or the athlete this season or you know, over the lifetime of my relationship with them, here's the strategy or the philosophy or the principles that we're going to adhere to. This is what drives the bus, Right. This is what we're about. And that's a short sentence, maybe 10 words, but very clear. And then then you can go in and like plug in all the tactics you want that align with that. But that misalignment is where we get off course, right? It's like where you're saying, oh, they do short hills. Well, we do long hills. Oh, well, they do sprint work. Well, we do, you know, 400s. Oh, who's right? It's like, well... Those methods, you know, matter. They are important, but what principles are they, you know, um, founded on? So, you know, I and I think that's a great point when you're looking, especially when you, uh, as our audience often does, um, do a deep dive and understand different methodologies of different coaches, right? Because um, at the at the extreme level, you know, you could. Well, I'll use a historical example, right? You had Fran Stample and Percy Sarity. Um, mm. who battled um, in the 60s. Bitter rivals. Yeah, yes. bit, bitter rivals. I mean, it was mm. a public bitter rivalry, right? Yeah. And Stample was very interval-based, very, like, scientific to his approach. Sarity was v- very artistic-based, uh, more by feel and um, all that good stuff. I'm simplifying here, but you get the drift. <laughs> um, but if you look at what they were trying to accomplish, and, and in your words, kind of their principles of what they were trying to accomplish, um, they were very similar, right? Yes. They were just mm-hmm. attacking the problem in a different way. Stample was taking a very systematic of like, okay, I need to get these athletes to you know, be able to withstand this and run these kinds of speeds and et cetera, et cetera. So I'm going to, you know, use this systematic interval approach to do so. And Sarity was like, well, you know, the key is to be able to, you know, do the same things, but I'm going to make, I'm going to empower the athlete and et cetera, et cetera. And we could talk for days on that, but like the core principles behind it, even if you evaluate the training that they did, like wasn't, wasn't that different um and i think that's one of the pieces that get lost is we can create these groups or splits based on you know the details of the training and whether you believe that a tempo should be at 
you know, half marathon pace or five seconds faster or 10 seconds faster. And it should it be four miles or eight miles or all these different things. Um, and when we get lost in that, we get lost out of the, out of realizing and recognizing the, the overarching principles that kind of guide us. Yeah. And it, it, it's easy to get lost because it takes a lot of clarity on your part as a coach and to sit down and create that because it's the easiest thing is to receive what's ever new and hot out there. A blog post by someone, you know, or, or an interview, you know, by someone with the coach or like, oh, these, all these people from this one team were ran real fast at this one meet. What are they doing? And but strategy or principles those that philosophy that keeps you grounded and it's about being grounded because in order to understand what you are about you have to also know what you're not about right and so the idea is if you're training a group of athletes whatever your level is high school college post-collegiate you know middle school you have to identify what is the number one most important thing that they learn at this level like what am i the teacher or conduit for you know, are you a performance-based coach? Are you just trying to get them to love the sport and be students of the sport and become lifelong fans? You know, are you, you know, trying to elevate their self-esteem or belief that they can do something or teach, you know, certain um, emotional uh, characteristics like work ethic and commitment and follow-through or overcoming fear, Right. And once you've defined that for your group of who you're working with, and it can be different even for athlete to athlete, too, within a big group, then you know how to approach and talk to them because you're knowing what change and evolution and growth looks like. You know, this kind of segues into what I think is another big mistake that we have for long in coaching uh, at all levels um, been victims of is coaching to just the numbers, right? And I see coaches do it, and I did it for a long time because the numbers are seductive. Numbers are useful. They're a good tool, but it's a seductive thing to coach the numbers because it gives us a, this sense of control and in the chaos of life, right? That's and, what everything is about, control. And, and it gives us <laughs> this false sense of certainty, right? Right, yes. Because it's like, that. that's why we fall for it. And that's and it's not just track. It's everything, right? Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If, if you can measure it, I, I, I think it was Alex Hutchinson who said something along the lines that, like, well, once once you uh, th- you realize it's significant and you can measure it, then it's, like, no longer significant anymore. Um, because you're just going to, like, play to the measurement, right? You're going to, like, direct right. things yep. towards that. And I think the same thing happens in, in training, right? We, we get these numbers and we get, like, oh, like, this is something I can control and give me certainty. So... I'm I'm now going to put my focus of attention on getting XYZ better, um, which might not necessarily make the performance better. Yeah, the relationship with numbers is interesting because they have value. Like it is important. They give a precision. You know, mathematics is a language, right? It, it, but it should be not the only language. It should be a complementary language as well as to the social psychological component, like the self-esteem component you know, the neurophysiological component, like, you know, I was having dinner with Dan Path a couple weeks ago when I uh, went down to Altus for an ACP. And, you know, you know, Path, as everyone knows, is a mentor of mine and, you know, someone I really value. And I asked him, okay, you know, just take me through how you view things. And he goes, well, it's, you know, uh, uh, it's a multi-lens or um, multi-lattice work uh, vision. And so what he's doing is, he has different, like kind of like Charlie Munger, different mental models. But what he's doing is he's looking through a kaleidoscope at what an athlete's doing, saying, expressing, and how they're being on the track or in the world. And then he's saying, okay, with all these references I have, maybe it's 10, 20 different mental models, he's going through and ticking the boxes saying, what's not tracking here? Like, you know, what? Or, and then he's saying, well, what's the biggest issue? You know, it might not just be a quality of movement issue or a physiological issue it might be a mental emotional issue their shoulders are slumped they just broke up with their girlfriend you know that might might be the biggest um liability here today at the track and i think 
that is important to understand like these models and the reason study continuous study is really important for any person and especially a coach is to be able to have a better relationship with the numbers and use them not as the sole solution but as an ingredient to the solution because it's all we're doing right coaching is just problem solving every day there's always going to be problems always there's no system there's no methodology that you can just plug people into and if they follow the numbers you run 50 miles a week you run 60 you do these two workouts you do these three workouts and voila it's a magic recipe that's going to come out of the oven the same every time doesn't exist <laughs> but it's seductive to think that that's you know can exist because what we're really doing here is trying to create you know performance dependable performance so what do we do we gravitate towards a recipe and that's why steve and i you know are critical of sole reliance on say any kind of recipe system or methodology like daniel's and we think it's a great onboard. It's a great, you know, prerequisite. You must read it. It's really good framework, really sound principles. But if that's all you got, you know, it's better than nothing. But it's there's a lot more to be had, and, right? And, and I think that you know, I think uh, sometimes it comes across as criticism. But I think Jack Daniels would tell you the exact same thing. I think so too. Like, I mean, yeah. I, I mean, I was. Go ahead, sorry. Yeah, I would I would say that and I would tell you the same thing about science of running. I mean, I know it's like super in depth, but like if that's where you stop, then that's not good because like my my thinking and evolution has evolved since that that book. I mean, I'm not saying that uh, certain sections I'd throw out or anything, but like it's slightly different on things. And I think Jack Daniels would tell you the same of like this is a great place to start. I I mean, I started there as well. I think it's yeah. fantastic. He breaks it down and and uh, in an easily consumable way of some very complex topics, and and it works, right? It works pretty pretty well for a large amount of people. But I think Daniels would tell you the same thing. It's like, yeah, you got to evolve um, and grow and like keep searching. And you know, the the perfect example of that is uh, is also another coach scientist, Joe Vigil, who mm. you know also has his very own system and has a book, but you Couple know, books. Yeah. yeah, you you talk to him and he'll tell you that, you know, every morning at 6 a.m. or whatever he gets, he's he's reading through uh, running research articles. Right. Because yep. yep. he's trying to evolve even as he's gotten into his, his later years. And I think that's that's what we're after here. And that's why we're bringing this topic up is because it's easy to fall back on uh, on being content. You know, I was reading a research article uh, for something that I'm writing later um, the other day that showed that um, people's ambition to uh, keep evolving, keep changing, and their work life peaks at around age 35. And again, this is on average. Um, some people keep that going, like a Joe V. Hill, all the way up until, you know, their 80s or whatever. Um, but a lot of times people just get stuck because they have a depth of knowledge where they can do their job well enough and uh, not learn anything else and, um, mm -hmm. and, and, and be fine. You know, you see this in doctors all the time where it's like, hey, they go through medical school, they learn a lot, et cetera. They have a good depth of knowledge. And then by 35, 40, like they, they do a, a good job, but then they stop updating themselves, stop reading as much research, stop staying up to date with stuff. And then, you know, their 60s, they're still doing the stuff from 20 years ago. And we've all encountered doctors uh, who, who fall into that, that, uh, that vein. And, you know, maybe there's nothing wrong with it. But I think that as coaches... If you're listening to this and spending an hour out of your day, then like you're the type who is going to like keep evolving and keep changing, and that's why we're pressing on this topic. Oh, well, and that's how that's how the industry and we, we, we get better because we have big problems to solve for this generation of coaches, right? You know, and the and, and I speak generationally, you know, for my generation, but also generationally for the generation that's kind of at the height of their powers right now and the height of their influence and also the younger coaches too we have every generation is going to have different problems right you hear it all the time people are bemoaning okay 
the distraction level of the athletes because of social media. Oh, woe is me. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Time out, Jeans. Go back. Radio was deemed when it first came out this big distraction. Newspapers, big distraction. TV, big distraction. Movies, big distraction. You know, it's just more ubiquitous, but it's it's easy. The easiest way not to be distracted by the cell phone or social media, put it down, turn it off, disconnect, get away from it, right? But it's like saying, oh, well, cigarettes are the problem. No, no, you're, you buying the pack of cigarettes is the problem. Don't buy the pack of cigarettes, you can't smoke. And so it's then teaching these habits and teaching this lifestyle to these kids and modeling that behavior, which is really key. Are you that coach at practice that's on your cell phone, talking to people, checking social media, doing this, and then you're telling kids, oh, you're so distracted. Well, it's the same deal. It's like saying, oh, eat healthy. Meanwhile, you're sitting here eating a quarter pounder with cheese or a Big Mac and a Coke or a Pepsi, and you're saying, well, you guys got to eat healthy, but you have this big beer belly gut. Like, people are smart. Kids are smart. Athletes are smart. Like, they're not going to listen to someone who doesn't eat their own cooking. Like, I, you know, I make myself sore and tired all the time testing out new um, strength and conditioning exercises, new ways of doing things. Like I'm my own guinea pig before I have the athletes do anything new. And I go, oh, that's what that feels like. Ugh, nope, definitely not going to do this. Or like, hey, this kind of works. I actually feel pretty good. This, you know, I mean, like say Bondarchuk's a good example. I've been going deep into his methodologies about lifting and then thinking about it and applying it to strength and conditioning for distance runners as well as even just a framework for different exposures or ways of exposing people to different qualities of running that we esteem and really thinking okay what does that stress and rest cycle look like and how can we accelerate things potentially if we apply this methodology guess who i test first on it me <laughs> so i knew what the beat up felt like i knew what the sore felt like i said oh does the body adapt as Bonner Chuck says, after like exposure 10 or 12. So, you know, so this is a good, uh, I'm glad you brought up Bonner Chuck because I think this is a, a good little segue into maybe a deeper part of like what coaches, what we might be getting wrong at this point. I had a, a good email exchange with Stu McMillan uh, over at Altus on a little bit on, on Bonner Chuck. A couple weeks ago, I wrote this long piece on stress and adaptation and mm. what, what we know about stress. And and this is one of these areas where I think that we might 20, 30 years from now look back and be like, oh, man, like we got it a little wrong. Because, right, yeah. Because like so much of our stress and adaptation model is based on uh, Hans Selye's work, uh, which which mm -hmm. has a lot of, a lot of flaws um, <laughs> in, a, yes. in a modern context. <laughs> <laughs> so but but it's it's what we base this um what we call a super compensation in the athletic world this model and we've all probably seen the pictures of you know apply a stress get, get a little worse allow recovery come back um and that's all all kind of based on Selye's work but you know Bondarchuk kind of brings in a different route of adaptation and if yeah. you look at some other more recent scientific um evolutions in the theory for instance you have the concept of allostasis you have the concept of mm -hmm. hormesis so you have these other concepts that are coming in that are trying to unravel this adaptation this stress and adaptation model um which is a little bit i think more complex than we gave it credit for so you know one of the things that i'm looking forward to is maybe um figuring out you know or having our model, our underlying model for how we adapt uh, change a little bit. And to not belabor the point, but to give you a little example is that more and more research is finding that like this stress and then adaptation model is more predictive than reactive. Mm -hmm. So the body, once again, is smarter than we give it credit for. Um, I'll, give you a, I'll give you a quick example to hopefully illustrate this concept, but um, if we're walking down a, a dark alley at night in a new city, um, it's not that we feel jittery and like feel this anxiety because our body's reacting to like, oh, there, uh, some stress is coming. Your body is seeing this new situation and saying, we better get prepared. So I'm going to predict that something bad is going to happen. 
right? Mm -hmm. And the same thing likely occurs when we look at workouts in the sense that your mind and body knows that, hey, I'm about to go run, you know, this really hard race or this really hard workout. So I'm going to predict that we need A, B, and C. So I'm going to release all this maybe adrenaline and then this testosterone levels and then this cortisol at this point because, like, this is what I think it's going to take to get through it. Um, so, you know, you step back and you think about that and you say, okay, like just based on this little predictive model, okay, how we frame workouts now matters a little bit more than maybe we thought. And mm -hmm. we could go dive super deep into stress and adaptation, maybe we will someday. But I think, you know, that's just an example of something where it's like, hey, 20, 30 years from now, our, our underlying theory of super compensation might be completely different. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those things we're going to, you always have to go back and you have to ask, okay, what if my assumptions are wrong? And that's the heart of what we're trying to do from this exploratory evolutionary critique here, saying what are the biggest mistakes? What are the assumptions we hold firm right now today that if we look back and we say, man, but what if we're wrong? And few people want to say, but what if we're wrong? Because again, it's, comforting to have a map in the chaos right but remember the map is not the territory the territory is the experience the actual reaction actually what's happening and the thing about the giants and that's what i call you know the giants are i used to call them the ancients but i think that's a little too uh you know incorrect of a way to frame it the giants you know that we talk about a lot here igloy serity you know bowerman lydiard etc etc co etc um <clears throat> A lot of them were making maps based on experience, based on the scientific method, which is have take a guess, hypothesis, do stuff, see if that thing translates and it works out the way you thought it did. And if it did, great, continue to experiment, continue to <clears throat> test. And if it didn't, that's great too. Continue, 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 right? The science of running is the experimentation, right, of running. And I think a lot of times we equate scientists to mathematicians because there's this precision. They're right. We have the right answer. And, you know, if you're a school teacher, right, if you have that mindset of being a school teacher, there's one right answer on the test. And that's what's comforting about trigonometry or introductory physics or, you know, introductory chemistry. There's one right answer on the test. But then you get into the minutia and you realize, okay, in quantum physics, is it a particle or a wave? What's really happening? It's vibrations. Like, okay, are, is there any matter? Like, you start to go deeper and deeper and deeper into the weeds, and the simplicity of explanation that was first presented to you is no longer valid. And that's where we're at here, right? We just have so much available to us. It's easy to be, you know, a hedgehog and curl up in a ball and just say, I'm just going to just, just apply this one one thing because I know it's work. It, it, it's the best, simplest thing that I can do. And But then you stop growing. And if you stop growing and evolving as a coach, then your athletes will as well, right? And this is why, you know, Steve and I read as much as we do because our mentors and colleagues like Vern Gambetta, you know, or Stu McMillan or Dan Path, they're reading all the time. I mean, Vern reads about 150 books a year, all the time <laughs> reading, all the time. You think I read a lot? I'm always, hey, Vern, what'd you read this month? And he's like, here's 40 books I read. I'm like, what? <laughs> you know? But that's why we we hang out with these people because, I mean, every time I go to Altus, I get a lot better because I look around and think, oh, yeah, I'm operating at a high level. And I go, oh, definitely not. <laughs> these guys are on the next level. And, you know, Stu was always like, man, is it a race on how many books you read? I go, dude, I'm just trying to catch up. You have 20 years of experience ahead of me, and I'm trying to catch up the best way I know how. I can't fight. I can't win a race against time. But you know what I can do? I can read a little bit more and be more prepared and, you know, use your insights that you're so generously giving at Altus and on social media and, you know, my experience and then talking to colleagues and bada bing, bada boom, hopefully I get a little bit better. Not guaranteed. But... <clears throat> It's very seductive, again, to take a recipe like a Daniel's. And we just use that because it's the most ubiquitous and contemporary one. If we were, you know, talking 20 years ago or 30 years ago, we'd say Lydiard. Because what did Lydiard say? You got to run 100 miles a week for six months. 
that's the way. And then you have this bounding phase and hill phase, and then you have the sharpening phase. And he gave very concrete guidelines and a recipe about how to get fast, right? So, And that's why people loved him. Lydiard is a great example in a modern context to show how this process works. Right. Right. Because think of that. Like, you nailed it right there. Lydiard, you know, uh, 30, 40 years ago would have been a formula in the same way that many people use Daniels in the sense of, 100 miles a week, bounding phase, interval sharpening phase, you know, all these uh, these different phases and, and very strict on it, right? But mm-hmm. what have we what have we done with Lydiard over time? Is that that's not the typical modern understanding of when someone says I oh I use a Lydiard system, right? How very few people go through a phase where they're doing these hill bounds, you know, three days, three, four days a week. Yeah. Um, Even though they say, hey, I'm doing Lydiard. Because what we've done is we've got, we've branched off that very hard formula and said, you know what? Like all of these things might be good, but in the evolution of training, what's really different and what's really stuck is, hey, we need a base, right? Yes, the base phase. (laughs) Right. And, and, and like that, that is the part of Lydiard that has stuck around you know, um, and mm-hmm. become it. So I think, I think that's a wonderful example of like linear modern times essentially is people think of it as like base and then sharpen. And that's not the formula that it was. And I think that's the example of, I think a good thing of, <laughs> of how training would come. Now, maybe in 30 years, we look back on Daniels and we say, Hey, you know, what was great about it is like, I don't know, um, control, like these, these threshold runs at around this pace was like spot mm-hmm. on. Like we should, we should keep this part of it. And Daniels becomes like this, this, you know, like Lydiard has. And I think that's, that's what happens, right? That's how we evolve things. And we kind of, um, keep, keep what is the best about things and then like ditch the rest a little bit. And sometimes we ditch some really good stuff, right? Oh yeah. Um, Even with Lydiard, we've, we ditched some really, really important parts. Stuff. Like, yeah, yeah. The hard thing to remember about Lydiard is he was trying to do two things at once. Like he was a performance coach coaching Olympians where speed and performance mattered. If you look at Lydiard, like, and I have this great, you know, Arthur Lydiard's running training schedules, second edition, from track and field news and it cost me you know about 200 bucks from 1970 but if you look at it i mean there's it's speed there's speed there's a lot of speed going on i mean it's like running you know 220s or or 200s running 400s like lots and lots of speed lots of it you know what we were you know that's what the heel and bounding phase was about was preparing the tissues in the body it was a sprint phase that's what hills and i mean if you really bounded like really bounded. That's just it's preparing the tissues. It's plyometrics, right? But the easiest concept to sell to people is the base. And he was trying to do two things: be a performance coach, but then translate the best aspects of performance to jogging, right? Because remember, him and Bowerman, the jogging phenomena came from Bowerman, who imported it from Lydiard. And the only difference between why Lydiard is more widely known and accepted. It's because he had a bunch of co-authors. He wrote all these books. And the guy was touring and going on coaching clinics for about 30 years. Sverity stayed in um, Portsea. And he just lived that kind of stoic life. And he wrote some books. But he didn't tour around nonstop, you know, preaching his gospel. And so that's why there's a difference there, right? So the only reason we accept Lydiard more widely is it's more familiar. And there's more reference points on it. But Sverity you know, to me is much better because his, you know, overarching strategy or philosophy or principles was comprehensive training, holistic mindset. He was concerned about, and this is another mistake, right? Not just the outer change of the physical adaptations of the organism of the athlete, but also the inner change, the psychology, how they're thinking, how they're interpreting, how they're problem solving. You know, it was that kind of holistic uh, you know, ancient Greek model of the gymnasium, where it was sound mind, sound body, right? Mensano and corpus sano, together, not separate. But we, you know, have taken in this industrialized world 
to say, walk into the rate room, do three sets of 10 of this, four sets of 10 of that at this load. Don't even have to think about it. And you know what? Because the super compensation model works, you'll get better. And to a certain point, yeah, it kind of works. But at another point, it's like, why do we have, like, say, in team sports now, the highest rate of, like, MCL and ACL injuries we've ever seen? You know, and that's a big why, right? But if we have all this available to us, those are certain markers we shouldn't be seeing, right? And so that's where we have to, you know, again, really chew on these conflicting things and say, where are some mistakes we're making? And it's just, we can't take the most easily digestible part from Lydiard and say, oh, we do a base phase. Like, if you're really going to be Lydiard influence, study Lydiard deep, 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 and understand his training schedules were for 800 meters on up. But if you weren't fast, there was no point to running the 100-mile weeks if you couldn't express speed when it counted. Yeah, and, and that's where I think it's really important to understand um, the, the the deep dive on this. I know we sound like broken records sometimes, but um, <laughs> <laughs> that you know, as as I, I won't we won't get into this, but as I'm becoming quickly embroiled in the Caster Semenya case um, and had a tweet thread go viral and seeing all the responses, I quickly realized how little nuance that that people accept in the world and we want these clean cut answers when Mm. um there's so much nuance and i think the same thing applies to training in the sense that we like to uh, whittle it down to a few things that are almost like sound bites of what these coaches or what these ideas ideas carry but there's a lot of nuance that is lost and sometimes that key is in the nuance right with Lydiard you look at those some of those schedules and you sit there and you say like man like I understand like why Peter Snell was fast and strong because like yeah. this guy was doing these hill bounding phase and then during some of them like it was hill bounding with like 100 meters near all out at the bottom of the hill before doing it again um, right. I'm looking at the schedule now. I opened the book and it says schedule definition. He gives a glossary. The first top one, the number one is ST, right? Sprint training. And the definition is any typical sprint workout emphasizing relaxed speed running. A useful training uh, method is to run 150 yards six times, gradually increasing the speed in the first 40 yards and running at top relaxed speed over the last 100 to 110 yards, a full recovery period between each run. And you hear that word relaxed speed, and you go, hmm, relaxed speed, what does that mean? Well, guess who was the person who preached that? Bud Winter, right? Speed City, San Jose State. And famously, Lydiard went and gave a three-hour lecture with Snell, with Murray, you know, with these people at San Jose State on behalf or bequest of Bud Winter. So if you read, like, Relax and Win, Right, but Winner's book. Lydia is like saying, Oh, how do we run fast? Let me talk to a sprint coach who's coaching the fastest people in the world right now at my generation. He's saying this method of relax, which is no tension, big range of movement, full hydraulics of the elbow and ankle and knee and all this good stuff. But they they called it quote unquote relax. It doesn't mean sitting here eating a you know, bag of Cheetos and having a soda, but it means in order to run as fast as possible. You can't have any tension. You have to be really proficient. So again, you know, you're right. You hit the nail on the money, Steve. It's like, look at that. And then you can see where the influences were for the people who are influencing us today. All right. That's a great example. As a quick aside, one of my favorite Bud Winter stories um, is that uh, Mike Joyner, a good friend and and doctor, said that for a while in his medical clinic for his residents and all the all all his future physicians the book relax and win became like the viral book that's going around for all these medical students because it passed on this like oh like this timeless wisdom outside of track that like yes i need to work hard but like to work hard doesn't mean to like strain the whole time doing it you know right um which I think is the point. I think if you don't know that and you read that Lydiard, you think like, oh, relaxed, fast and relaxed. That means like, oh, maybe a good stride in our modern 
um, language, but if you see it, it says like top speed that you can run fa- fast and relaxed. You tie that to Bud Winner's book, and you're like, oh man, these guys were moving, right? Yeah, they're going all out. Like, yeah. <laughs> like they're running eleven points. Like that's fast, but they're how they're doing it is relaxed, right? And that's you know, this is my other like bone to pick with our modern coaching mistakes is we esteem capacity over proficiency and when the reality is capacity is dependent on proficiency so what does that mean in distance running capacity is how many miles a week you're running or you know i always tweet all the time like that's stupid essentially and i'm not saying it's stupid because it's not a sound thing it's stupid if it's without the prerequisite onboarding of proficiency how are you moving right it's are we teaching people how to move like i coach at a public track you know, in Portland. And it's a, it's a great asset because you see all these people creating locomotion and you're like, huh, that's a very interesting way to do that. They're running, but it doesn't look right or looks like it hurts or they're running slow or they're getting fatigued quickly or there's dysfunction. And so for me, it's just every day I'm like learning, you know, learning about movement patterns, good, bad, useful, unuseful. But then every now and again, you see like someone show up to the track who has been coached on how to run, typically a sprinter. And they're doing all these drills like, they know how to move. Why? Someone taught them. And where they teach them? Probably college. And if they're really, you know, lucky in high school. We in the distance world, we don't teach this. But yet we then tell people we need to load you with a hundred miles a week, 60 miles a week, because mileage is the key. Run more to get better. It's a simple, you know, uh in narrative and it's easily palatable and digestible. People get it. But if you're not prefacing that with the basic fundamentals on how to move and like what the positions and postures are for movement, you're going to load this dysfunctional pattern with all its capacity and then stress fractures happen. Big stress fractures happen. Overuse injuries happens. So, you know, like I, you know, quick aside, ran 150 miles in a week, you know, last week. I didn't go out to go run 150 miles. I just moved well and just ran at certain times and just was exploring what happened. I added up the numbers for that seven-day interval, and I was like, no, that's not right. And I asked my wife to add it up, and she's like, yeah, that's right. I go, wow, that's more running I've done in a seven-week interval than ever before by like 40 miles, by like four hours, five hours, right? Now, was I tired? No. Was I beat up? No. Did because I've really been working on how I've moved, and they were all between like seven minute and six minute pace for the miles, just solo by myself. Because again, I'm exploring, <clears throat> not training for anything, but no more old man calf, right? Be, why I cleaned up a lot of dysfunction I had having seen the uh, deficiencies in my own personal movement pattern, and I realized, whoa, if I can do that, maybe there's something here worthwhile to look on. And then I talked to Dan Path, he's like, hey don't be a dummy. Take a, take a week off. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, thanks, Dan. You're a real smart mentor. That's why I hold counsel with you. Appreciate it. But <clears throat> if we don't f- focus on proficiency and then we esteem capacity and we sit here and we, you know, pull our hair out why people are getting hurt or why people can't do, oh, anytime they do speed work, they pull a calf. And we blame the athlete for being non-compliant. When you hadn't taken the time as coach to teach the proficiency of movement patterns, that's not on the athlete. It's actually on you. And if we're going to evolve and and if you know stay caught up with the direction of competitive distance running in the world, we need to teach proficiency first. It is a, a, a mandatory prerequisite. This is why places like Altus or Gain are really important assets. Because if we don't go there and we don't support these people who know proficiency inside and out, we're going to be poor for it. You know, I threw out a tweet the other day. It's like today, you know, early May 2019, our top American in the marathon and the men is sitting 98th on the time list. 98th, our top guy. You know, our women, a little bit better, 24th, but still 24th. And we're getting whooped by who? Like East African, you know nations but what do they do they teach proficiency day one 
Step one, they're always working on movement. They're always working on how to run. You know, I, and a professional coach was like, oh, yeah, you watch the Ethiopians. Like, they do like an hour of like just basic body drills before they even run. Yeah, movement, man. Like, they get it. Like, you can have all the gusto and gumption in the world and motivation. But if you don't move well, like, you're going to break down. And, you know, we, we just can't. It's like in lifting, right? What is the strength coach does day one in the weight room? teaches the athletes how to do these complex lifts, power cleans, you know, you know, uh, Olympic lifts. Those are really explosive, tough movements with a lot of load and a lot of weight. But yet athletes can do them. Why? And without tearing things or ripping things because they teach the correct pattern and proficiency to do it. And then the athlete's happy and on their way and they get the benefit out of it. We need to do the same in distance running. It's kind of my, you know, drum I'm going to be here for a long time. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's, you know, as we talk about things that we're doing right or wrong, um, I, I do think that there's a tendency in the endurance world to have, like, this energetic um, uh, base model, mm -hmm. right, yeah. which um, hampers some of the movement uh, efficiencies and movement capacities or proficiencies that you're talking about there. Um, because regardless of what you look at and who you're training, whether you're training sprinters, distance, jumpers, throws, football players, whatever, we all have our inherent bias where we look at our sporting world through this lens, right? And ours in the distance world is an energetic model. And it's not to say that energetics aren't important, but... As I've developed as a coach, I think over time I've <laughs> I've realized that they're just one piece of the puzzle, and that our entire training system um, doesn't need to be based around this. And even you know, from a movement standpoint, but also from a, a training design standpoint, in the sense that. Uh, you know, sometimes the energetic of the workouts might not be what I want, but like I need to get people to have the develop the ability and the relaxation under fatigue for running 60 second mm -hmm. quarters, regardless mm -hmm. of what the uh, energy system you sends up being um, for that workout, right? So it's like I'm putting putting this point of emphasis over, you know, what percentage aerobic, anaerobic, whatever we're going to use on this. So it comes in at, at a, a variety of different angles. And I think it don't yeah. get me wrong. We need to know the energetics inside and out, but it's not the only thing that we should be modeling our training on. And it's a conceptual framework, right? The energetic model, because <clears throat> unless you're there, taking blood every interval, you don't know exactly what's going on at the biochemical level. Like you have a good concept that these paces or this respiratory rate, you know, kind of translates towards these things. And we know these, you know, guidelines on ATP, you know, happens here, you know, VO2 max happens there. And again, we have good maps that allow us some orientation, but to, to sit there and have the hubris to say, oh, we're going to do 10 times a quarter and this is going to be, you know, anaerobic power and it's, you know, just the alactic threshold and you're like, oh, are you taking blood samples every quarter? No? Oh, so, then we don't know. <laughs> so, and that's a great point. And, uh, you know, not to belabor something, but this is near and dear to my heart, um, is that we don't know. Right, like these, <laughs> yes. the, these physiological concepts. Like I've, I've studied them in and out, out for most of my life, and like I could maybe get you in the ballpark most of the time, but like it's a very big ballpark, um, right. because you know if anyone has ever taken blood lactate levels, and I have because I was the the college nerd who bought my own blood lactate sampler so that I could mess around with it. And mm -hmm. uh, you bet your ass I messed around with it on myself and other athletes uh, in a variety of workouts. And what it really taught me was like how much variability there is, um, even if I was running very similar paces, you know, sometimes mm -hmm. it, and, and in the same fitness. You know, I remember 
um, maybe a week apart doing a, a threshold run where I was running, I don't know, at my, I was in my peak fitness and running low five minute pace. And, you know, at one point I was at, you know, below quote unquote lactate threshold and around three millimoles for my blood lactate samples I was taking. And then, you know, a week later with, out any fitness changes because it's only been a week you know those blood lactate samples were seven or eight um after a mile or two at low five minute pace which should have been comfortable but (laughs) because of you know the surrounding maybe fatigue and training and maybe just that day like the energetic system used uh was completely different and i think that's one of the mistakes we make where we think that we can predict and um, understand exactly what system we're working on when the reality is like we get in the ballpark and that's about that's about the best you can do unless you're you know the one runner who did it and measured stuff all the time was a 5k runner uh, Marius Backen who ran 13 O's and he used to say like yeah I measure everything because like even though I've been measuring all this stuff and pricking my finger for years on end like I still can't get I I still can't get it as accurate and know exactly where I'm going to be um so unless you're that obsessive which I don't think is necessarily a good thing um you know there's you're you're going to be off sometimes and you're not going to be able to predict the exact energetics of it yeah, and that's the important point to make is – and always remember the body and every person's body is a very complex organism. There's a lot of different systems, you know, like just downloading anatomy app. And it, the, what I love about it is you can look from the outer – what I'm calling the outer, like the, the physical anatomy. you got the lymphatic system. you got, you know, the, the arteries. Uh, you got the digestive system. you got, you know, the – the brain you got the skin you got you got a lot of things going i mean there's more and more and more right and so they all interplay it's not like the lymphatic system does not have any kind of interpretation or influence or part played during a workout or race it does and so it it, you it's easy to get overwhelmed at first but then you say look we know these things why because people and our predecessors before us understood discovered these things and are figuring them out and so it's on us you know today to continue to study and evolve and to not settle for like steve said after that that's that peak at 35 or 40 for a just basic foundation of knowledge because it's a force multiplier right clarity and a simulation of you know new thought and new information is a force multiplier and thankfully like it's exponential the amount available to us. So just develop a practice to deal with it. That's why I read, you know, at specific times in the day because, you know, or V Hill, right, 4 a.m., 6 a.m., he reads these things because you're one person, you only can take in so much, but just do the math, right? If you're doing that two hours or four hours a day, almost every day, there's a lot you can take in, but you just have to just not get distracted and just use this placement activity. Like, just don't use instagram like what are you really learning on instagram like really really how's it changed how you live and work and coach i mean it's a good distraction and it's fun it's interesting and that's the point of the activity but it's like a cigarette honestly it's a quick hit it feels good really doesn't have a long positive lasting impact and actually long term it might do more damage than good um but if you what I like to think about now more is something like, you know, Canova and then um, uh, Valerie Adams' coach or uh, Werner Gunther's coach, Jean-Pierre Egger, they both talked about this idea of normalization. And that's really what training is about, right? We're trying to normalize something. So if you're a sprinter or if you're an 800-meter runner, you're trying to normalize through, and going back to Bondrachuk, right, progressive, consistent uh, exposures some type of, you know, way of being in the world, which is running quarters, two quarters consecutively for a college male at 55. You're so how are you going to normalize that? Or if you're a marathoner, right? You know, like, how are you going to for women normalize running two and a half hours at 540 pace to run a 230 marathon? And the fun part is, is like, we're at this time, 
when all the old rules are no more. I mean, Steve is working with, you know, 41 year old woman who just ran 230 for the marathon. And you're like, what? What? Who, who said? Well, no one said you couldn't. <laughs> I mean, you know, the paths are different, right? For everyone. It's not like only 25 year olds can run 230 for the marathon for women. I mean, it's just few have tried. It's like, who said you can break four on the mile? Well, Rogers Master was like, yeah, I'll do it. I'll be willing to risk all the experts saying my heart will explode if I run sub four because I don't think it will. And if you look at training as the normalization of some type of ability, and the only way we get through normalizing something is through frequent, it's the frequency principle, right? Frequent, consistent exposures to it. And that's what Bonnerchuk was talking about. Just do the thing over and over and over again. Not too much, not too little. Go to the luck principle, right? Just enough, but frequently enough. Your body will adapt. And it's amazing to watch. And it's amazing to do. I mean, you know, Steve, I know you've seen this time and time again, but this is how I, you know, think about training now or think about preparation or practice. Like, what are we trying to normalize? Like, Steph Curry has normalized hitting three-pointers perfect swish from midcourt. It's a normal thing for Steph Curry to do it. Why? Study and practice. You know, frequency of it. So, you know, there's certain things we can't change, like our skin color, you know, or, you know, our, our teeth. Like, those things you know, are, are kind of hardwired with how they are. But there's a lot we can. And I think that's the thing is change is good. Change is the purview of a coach. And if you're not changing as a coach and getting better and then questioning if the assumptions you have or we have collectively today might be wrong, because they might be, well, then you might not actually be coaching. You might just be you know, sitting here just being compliance officer. And Lord knows we need less compliance officers in the world today. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you, you know, I, I think as we, we've passed an hour and so, I think that might be a good place to wrap up because I think, uh, A, compliance officers, sorry. Um, we, we have a love-hate relationship with you if you're in the NCAA. Um, but more importantly is that message of like change is good. You know, I bet if you went back and listened to episode one or two or three of this, like you'd probably hear us contradicting some of the things we said back then. And, you know, that's a good thing. Um, this isn't the world of politics where change is like demonized, which hurts politics. Um, change is good as long as it has a reason for it. You know, and what we're challenging all of our listeners to do is to just take the time and think and question and ask, like, hey, what are the what are some of the the paths that we've gone down that maybe aren't the best for a training standpoint, or um, maybe you know, maybe um, maybe could use some um, changes or some I uh, have some holes to fill. You know, I I was listening to a really smart or talking to a really smart uh, worker for a a major company doing great things. And uh, they made the point that they're exploring like performance improvement in a lot of areas and talking to all these experts. And, you know, we asked like, well, how do you decide what expert knows what and like what ones to follow? And they said, well, you know, the one of the major things I look for is if they tell me they have all the answers and all the solutions. Um because if they do, then I know <laughs> that I know that they're not going to be for us because like that's yep. not that's not reality. And this yeah, is a, turn a, around and run. <laughs> yeah, this this was a major this had nothing to do with athletics. This was major tech company, you know. And I was like, "Oh, that that's brilliant." Um because it's the same in our sport, it's the same in everything, and you know, John and I might come off as we have answers to some stuff, but like hopefully it comes off as we're in this journey exploring with you guys as well. So just hopefully this episode challenges you to keep improving, keep questioning assumptions, and keep challenging norms to see if like maybe maybe John and I are missing stuff or maybe the rest of the world is too. Yeah, I mean there's always going to be problems. Like to think that we're going to live in a, a, a non-problematic state, that is called death. That's the only time there's no problems because there's nothing going on. So if we accept that there's always problems, then we understand like the idea is to create 
solution. All we can do is create solutions with the best intentions and information and experience and resources that we got for now. And that's, I hope there's a narrative um, or an evolutionary arc to like this, even this entire podcast, you know, and, and 10 years from now, I hope it's completely different or refined or a little bit better, a little bit crisper, a little bit more um, nuanced, so to say, because that will show Steve and I's growth. Because we just sat here and just talked about the same thing every podcast. It get kind of trite and, you know, it wouldn't be as fun. And so same situation here. It's not bad. It's good. Create where you stand today, the best solution you can for the problems you're encountering with athletes, race models, whatever. I mean, that's what Steve and I have done and did our whole career. And it will work. A lot of it will work as long as you are clear on identifying what your objective is. Because if you don't have that target with the objective, you know, you can't say then if what your methods and principles are, if that strat- those strategies and tactics are actually having a positive influence in meeting that objective, right? So saying like, I want to be good. I want to be fast. We want to be uh, a good team. Well, you have to really crisply, sharply define that. And a lot of times we use mathematics, right? The place, the time. And that's where numbers come in and are helpful. But same situation here. It's like, Steve and I don't have the answers. And more and more, right? We have more questions. <laughs> so if you have questions, you know, really like reach out to people and ask people questions. That's actually where I learned the most is asking colleagues and, you know, mentors questions. Like Danny Mackey was in t- is in town, you know, and I'm asking him a bunch of questions. Not saying, oh, Danny, I have all the answers because I've read these books. You know, no, I just, I have a lot more questions and a lot more resources to create solutions, the best solutions I can right now. But if you are, feel like you're short on those things, you know, books are really good, like The Passion Paradox. That's a really good book that if you read that book, it will help you design, you know, better solutions or going to places like Gain or even Altus's ACPs. We need to talk to some of the best people today, creating the best solutions with the most informed solutions they can in the modern era, seeing not necessarily what they're, you know, worrying about their tactics or methodology, but what are the principles, what are the philosophies, what is the strategy guiding that decision-making and that solution creation, and talking to, you know, people like Jimmy Radcliffe or Vern Gambetta in person or at Altus, Stu McMillan and Dan Path in person. That is where light bulbs happen. So I really hope you as a coach can go back on a personal inventory and say, here is what I did to expand my knowledge base this year. What books am I reading? What conferences or continuing education things I went to? Like my wife's a physical therapist, and they have a certain number of continuing education units they have to do every year to maintain and keep their certification or their license. So in that profession they're like you have to grow you have to learn more because what we taught you to give you your doctorate in pt might not be the best practice anymore we are cognizant of that as an industry so we it's now a mandate and requirement that you have to have a certain number of hours of growth documented for you to maintain your ability to practice and frankly i think we should have the same thing in coaching because if we don't we're all poor for it 100 percent. i mean i think that is a a great place to end. So hopefully you guys uh, found this useful, insightful. Reach out to John or I. Um, we'll try and I know it's track season, but we'll try and keep these going now that uh, the college season winds down a little bit with school uh, stopping. So enjoy. Check out the show notes. Check out what we told you to. And thanks for being part of this journey.